Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we have part two of our episode on French author Colette. Love and passion and pain and loss were all ongoing themes in her writing. And her writing also played a lot with gender and sexuality, including lots of portrayals of women and their physical desires and their pursuits of fulfilling relationships. Most critics consider Colette's portrayals of women to be the most interesting and the most fully realized, sometimes with her portrayals of men being criticized as seeming weak or one-dimensional. Part one of this two-part episode is highly recommended before getting into this one because it covers the first 40 years of Colette's life, including her marriage to Henri de Juvenel. We are picking up during that marriage today. Uh, Heads up, today's episode includes Colette's sexual relationship with her 16-year-old stepson, uh, and we will also have some brief mentions of suicide. So as we mentioned in part one, Colette's second husband, Henri de Juvenel, was a wealthy baron. And during their marriage, he was elected to represent the Department of Corrèze in the French Parliament. Colette was writing fiction, as well as writing for Le Matin, where Henri was a political journalist and editor. In addition to her writing, Colette was called on to host various officials and dignitaries, and to visit them as well. This was all a big shift from what her life had been like before this point. Prior to their marriage, Henri had a reputation as a womanizer, and sometime during Colette's pregnancy with their daughter, he started having an affair with another woman. Colette found out and was once again devastated, and this might have led to a pretty speedy end for their relationship, But then World War I began, and in August of 1914, Henri was called into active service in the military. 
Colette made a very brief foray into volunteering as a night nurse before transferring to the day shift and then traveling under forged identification papers to join her husband. And when we say this foray was brief, it lasted about a week before she asked to move to the day shift and then set off for Verdun. Soon, she was writing about what she saw there, becoming one of the first women in Europe to report from the front. Her work was published at Le Matin. That was the publication that her husband edited, and she published at other journals and newspapers as well. Then this work was published as a collection called The Long Hours After the War Was Over. She focused a lot of her wartime writing on how the war was affecting women and children. This wasn't a subject that many other reporters were really covering. But this work is also lyrical, more sentimental, and sometimes even romanticized, especially when compared to writers who were focused more on the war's horrific and violent aspects. In Secrets of the Flesh, A Life of Colette, biographer Judith Thurman writes, quote, there is not a single corpse in any of her dispatches. There is anxiety, but no despair, hunger, but no starvation. Some of this is probably a byproduct of where Colette was and what she personally witnessed. But it's also one of the running themes of her life. She often did not directly comment on or seem to notice political crises or major world events unless they personally affected her. For example, most of what we talked about in part one of this episode took place during the Dreyfus Affair, which we covered on the show as a two-parter in 2021, and that was something that divided French society. And we didn't mention it because Colette's surviving writing never even mentions it. And we don't really know what her opinions were on it. Although we do know Willy, who she was married to at the time, was anti-Semitic and anti-Dreyfusard. On the rare occasion that Colette did directly comment on things like politics, her opinions didn't really align with what a person might expect based on what we have talked about in her life so far. Like... She took dance lessons and started publishing her work under her own name in preparation to leave her husband, and all of that ran contrary to what was expected of women. She tried to make a life for herself under her own terms, and one of the themes of her writing is that women should be able to feel fulfilled, including having sexual fulfillment in their lives. But she didn't think of herself as a feminist or advocate for political equality regardless of sex. In 1910, she told an interviewer that she thought suffragists were disgusting and said they deserved, quote, the whip and the harem. After the war was over, Henri de Juvenel traveled to Geneva as part of France's delegation to the Disarmament Commission, and Colette's role expanded at Le Matin. In addition to working as a theater critic, she became literary editor, including deciding which works of fiction Le Matin should publish. She also turned her attention back to writing fiction herself, which she had not done much of during the war. The result was Cherie, published serially and then as a book in 1920. This is about an affair between a 49-year-old woman named Leah and a 25-year-old man named Fred, known as Cherie. This follows their affair through to its necessary end, and the end of that affair leaves both of them heartbroken. Although Colette originally envisioned this as a play, it became one of her best-known novels, especially in France. That same year, she was named Chevalier in the French Legion of Honor. After Colette had started publishing Cherie, 
Henri's ex-wife Sarah sent their son Bertrand to try to convince Colette to persuade Henri to allow Sarah to keep using her married name. The de Juvenel name carried a lot of prestige and influence, and Henri seems to have felt like Sarah was abusing that privilege and was annoyed about it. Bertrand was 16, the same age that Colette had been when she met her first husband, Willy. Colette seduced Bertrand, and her behavior toward him and her descriptions of all this are pretty manipulative and predatory. Bertrand had a girlfriend his own age, Pamela, the sister of one of his school friends. When Colette, who was 48, started seducing him, this included giving him books from her library to read, and one of those books was Cherie, about this affair between an older woman and a much younger man. She later said, quote, I invented Leia as a premonition. The biography we mentioned earlier described the villa of Rosven, where Colette spent her summers as, quote, a hotbed of Chekhovian drama during this time. Colette also passed letters back and forth between Bertrand and Pamela and used their relationship as the basis for Le Blé en Herbe, or The Ripening Seed, which came out in 1923. That was also the year that Henri found out what was going on. Either Colette admitted it to him or he caught them together. He was outraged and left Colette immediately. Henri had numerous affairs during their marriage, but his wife sleeping with his teenage son was obviously something very different from that. Bertrand described himself as horrified to have been the cause of all this chaos and strife. Given Henri's position at Le Matin, Colette had to stop working there. After a few months, she went to work at one of the publication's rivals, Le Journal, and she and Bertrand continued to have a pretty public relationship in Paris. This, of course, led to a lot of scandal and gossip, more connected to the fact that Bertrand was Colette's husband's son than their respective ages. Eventually, Bertrand's engagement was announced to Marcel Pratt and Colette was extremely jealous and kept trying to convince him to stay with her instead. But Bertrand's wedding went on as planned in 1925. Colette published a sequel to Cherie called The Last of Cherie the following year. In it, after years apart, Cherie returns to Leah and finds her older and heavier, and he's no longer attracted to her. He takes his own life at the end of the book, which is one of a number of suicides in Colette's writing. By the time this book was published, Colette had met someone else, Maurice Goudiquet, who was 35. He had long been a fan of her work, and at first, he found her really intimidating. But their relationship would continue for the rest of her life. During that time, she would evolve from being thought of as a perpetual source of scandal, chaos, and controversial literature to a more mature and knowing woman whose long experience had given her perspective on things like love and loss. And also for having a deep love of fine things, including good food and wine, and taking joy in indulgence. She would eventually say of herself, Je suis gourmet, gourmand, glutton, or I am gourmet, greedy, gluttonous. We'll have more on her life after a quick sponsor break. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Before his death in 1922, Marcel Proust had been widely regarded as France's greatest living writer. After that point, in a lot of people's opinion, France's greatest writer was Colette. As the 1920s progressed, Colette decided to sell the Villa of Rosven that she and Missy had purchased so that she could purchase another place near Saint-Tropez. She continued to both write and act, including a touring production of Cherie with herself in the role of Leah. She published a series of stories about her childhood called My Mother's House in 1922. In 1928, she was named an officer in the French Legion of Honor, and a year later she published Sido, which was a memoir of her mother Sidonie, who had died in 1912. We talked about how uh, much she admired and aspired to be like her mother, and a lot of people had pointed out that, like, it took a while before she returned to the idea of her mother and her writing after her mother's death. Colette and Maurice struggled financially after the Great Depression started in 1929. 
Maurice had been a pearl merchant, and his business had already become a lot less profitable, in part because the fashion world was turning toward costume jewelry. He eventually gave up his pearl business and started selling things like used washing machines. Then, in 1931, Colette broke her fibula. She developed ulcers around her cast, so doctors removed it much earlier than they normally would. Colette later developed arthritis, which was progressively disabling and painful, and Maurice believed this break and how it was treated were a factor. Colette tried many different treatments for this condition, including thermal baths, acupuncture, and during the 1940s, x-ray treatments, some of which caused burns on her stomach and legs. In 1932, Colette published Ce Plaisir, or These Pleasures, which would later be revised and republished as The Pure and the Impure. She later described this as the closest she would ever come to an autobiography. It included a lot of her thoughts on love and passion, especially in terms of same-sex relationships. It included an account of the ladies of Langotland, who we covered on the podcast back in 2017, and that one made a return to people's feeds in 2020 as part of an episode or a sort of a playlist of all of our favorites. She also continued to appear on stage, including another portrayal of Leia in a production of Cherie, although by this point, she was visibly older than the character that she was portraying. She also opened a beauty institute in 1932 where she made and sold perfumes and cosmetic treatments. She framed this as giving other women the power to enhance and preserve their beauty and stave off aging. And a lot of people thought the whole idea was way beneath a writer of such national stature. The institute only lasted for about a year, though. It seems like she more or less just kind of lost interest. In 1935, Colette and Maurice got married in a civil ceremony. They had been together for about a decade, and he was 45 and she was 62. Their decision to get married at this point was at least ostensibly a practical one, not necessarily a romantic one. They were planning a trip to New York, and they'd heard that the hotels might not rent them a room together if they were not married. This relationship seems to have been happy, stable, and loving. Maurice later said of it, quote, I set myself gently by the side of this woman whom life had so wounded, and I did so with the firm determination of proving to her that fidelity was not an empty word. Year by year, she grew more persuaded of this, and her last books bear witness to a serenity that she would not otherwise have acquired. The year Colette and Maurice got married, Henri de Juvenel died, and the year after that, Colette published My Apprenticeships, which is both the story of how she became a writer and a look at her relationship with her first husband, Henri Gautier Villard, also known as Willy. He had died back in 1931. This is pretty scathing in its treatment of him. Her reputation of a writer was continuing to grow. In 1936, she was named commander in the French Legion of Honor. By that point, Adolf Hitler had become Chancellor of Germany. The Nazi Party had been made Germany's only legal political party and had passed discriminatory laws restricting virtually every aspect of Jewish people's lives and stripping them of German citizenship. Tensions were escalating in Europe and in Asia, and Italy had invaded Ethiopia. But as was the case with so many other major events, Colette didn't really seem to pay much attention to any of it. This was true even after Paris fell to the German army in 1940, after which the French government moved to Vichy and began collaborating with the Nazi party. 
And it was true even though Maurice Goudiquet was Jewish. But then on December 7th, 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and the United States made its formal entry into World War II. The French resistance increased its activities, and in response, Hitler issued what was known as the Night and Fog Decree, allowing German authorities to arrest people who were believed to be part of the resistance or otherwise endangering German interests. The name Night and Fog came from the idea that these arrests, which really were essentially kidnappings, would happen during the night with people simply disappearing from sight. They would be detained and they would be tried in secret courts. On December 12, 1941, the Gestapo arrived at the Paris apartment in the Palais Royal where Colette and Maurice were living. This is something neither of them seemed to have thought of as a possibility, and they were not at all prepared for it. Colette and their housekeeper were able to pack a small bag for Maurice before he was taken away. This was obviously terrifying for everyone, especially because both Colette and Maurice don't seem to have considered that something like this could happen. Colette said that for the rest of her life, her mouth would start trembling anytime someone unexpectedly arrived at her door. Maurice was held at a detention camp northeast of Paris. He later described this as a place where he was not given much to eat and their bedding was infested with vermin. But at least for fit and healthy people, things were manageable, and the guards mostly left them alone. He managed to have notes to Colette smuggled out of the camp from time to time, most of them asking for things like food or books. Meanwhile, Colette tried to free him, calling in favors, talking to anybody she thought might be able to help. Eventually, on February 6, 1942, he was freed on the order of Otto Abetz, who was the German ambassador to Vichy, France. He had married a French woman named Suzanne de Breuker in 1932. She had convinced her husband to intervene on Colette's behalf. After Maurice's release from the camp, they remained in Paris. A couple of months later, they had tea with Suzanne de Breuker at the German embassy. That June, the Nazis ordered Jewish people in France and a number of other countries to start wearing yellow stars. This is something that Colette described her husband as not particularly bothered by. It was only after Vichy authorities started deporting thousands of Jewish people from France and one of Colette's Jewish friends took her own life that they started to believe that Paris might be too dangerous. They went to Saint-Tropez using forged papers, but eventually Maurice made his way back to Paris and remained in hiding there. Colette made her way back as well, and they were both in Paris when it was liberated in August of 1944. Shortly before the liberation of Paris, Missy de Belboeuf, who we talked about in part one, died by suicide. Sometime after the immediate aftermath of their breakup had subsided, Missy and Colette had gotten in contact again. They kept up a correspondence for most of the rest of their lives. Missy died at the age of 81, having outlived many close friends and also started to experience some cognitive decline. As was the case with much of what happened in the world during Colette's lifetime, she did not really comment on the events of World War II or speak out against the Nazi Party's violent anti-Semitism, even as it targeted her husband. We do not really know her thought process on this. Some scenarios are easy to imagine, like she may have understood that if she were publicly vocal on any of this, her husband's life would be at risk. 
But she's described as being a passive collaborationist during World War II, and she also published a lot of her work in pro-Vichy anti-Semitic journals. During the war, she also published a novel, Julie de Carnil-On, which contained a lot of anti-Semitic language. Yeah, even generously, this was not good, any of it. One of Colette's more well-known novellas, especially in the United States, was one of the works she published in a pro-Vichy journal during World War II. This was Gigi, which was published in 1944. This is the story of a girl in Paris whose grandmother and great-aunt are training her to be a high-class courtesan. Does not go exactly the way that those two women are planning for her. After the war was over, Colette chose Audrey Hepburn to play the role of Gigi on Broadway, and that launched Hepburn's career. Gigi was also made into a musical film in 1958, and that film won all nine Academy Awards that it was nominated for. Colette did not live to see this version of her novella, though. And we're going to talk about that after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper... You're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Thank you. 
As we mentioned earlier, Colette developed arthritis, and it worsened during World War II. We've also talked about how Colette really hated the idea of aging. And in her younger years, she had kept up a fitness regimen to both sculpt what her body looked like and to hopefully prevent physical problems later on in her life. Her body changed a lot as she got older, but she had really hoped that she was going to be active and physically well all the way until the end. So her disability and the chronic pain that accompanied it were just very, very upsetting to her. She tried to remain in good spirits, and if she thought she was sinking too far into despair, she would think about when the Gestapo came for Maurice. She thought that was the worst thing that could ever happen to her, and it had already happened. She spent most of the last years of her life in an apartment in Paris that overlooked the Palais Royal Gardens, an apartment that she described as, quote, another country home in Paris. Her bed was pushed against the window so she could see outside and sit in the fresh air when the weather was good. For a time, she was still able to travel, and she and Maurice would stay with friends or in hotels or visit spas and thermal baths with the hope that she would get some pain relief. But the more trouble she had with her mobility, the less this was possible. This was an upstairs apartment. It was not accessible to her. Getting downstairs required her and her wheelchair to be carried That was something that required two strong people to do. Maurice thought about moving them to a first-floor apartment where this wouldn't be an issue, but worried that that kind of relocation would just be too upsetting for her. And then she would also no longer have the view of the gardens that she loved so much. After World War II, there had been a wave of effort in France to seek out and prosecute people who had collaborated with Germany. Many writers who had published in the pro-Vichy press had their work boycotted, and some faced death threats and violence. But Colette's reputation was seemingly unaffected by her publishing in a range of pro-Vichy journals during the war. On May 2, 1945, she was elected to the French literary organization known as the Académie Goncourt. She was only the second woman to be so honored. Edmond de Goncourt, who established the Academy, had specified in his will that it was not open to women or Jews. He also excluded poets and members of the Académie Française. In 1948, Colette was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature, although that prize went to T.S. Eliot. In 1953, she was named Grand Officer in the French Legion of Honor. Colette died in Paris on August 3, 1954, at the age of 81. Maurice wrote an account of her death in which he said that as she was dying, she kept admonishing him to look, look. He couldn't see what was so absorbing and so wondrous to her and thought she must be seeing paradise. He later said of her, quote, for 30 years, she enabled me to live in a fairy world. It is often mentioned that Colette was denied Catholic funeral rites because of her divorces and remarriages which is true. But she had not left any instructions for what should happen to her after her death, aside from the instruction that no one should see her. The request for a Catholic funeral had come from Maurice. Colette was instead honored with a state funeral in France on August 7, 1954. She was buried at Père Lachaise Cemetery. Maurice had become her literary executor, He later wrote a book about their life together called Pré de Colette, or Close to Colette. He later remarried and also became a father at the age of 71. 
He wrote a memoir about this called The Delights of Growing Old, which was published in 1966. He died on January 28th, 1977. Her daughter died in 1981 and was buried next to Colette at Père Lachaise. Colette was regarded as a national icon in France by the time of her death, and her work was widely read and deeply beloved. She wrote at least 50 books, along with plays and articles and a ton of letters. She was a very avid correspondent. Although some of her books had been translated into other languages during her lifetime, she didn't become as widely known in many other parts of the world until later. In the UK and the US, her popularity didn't really take hold until the 1970s, thanks to a surging interest in women's literature. We'll end with a quote from her work that, to me, evokes both Colette's style of writing and how she viewed her own life and work. She published the short story Les Vrilles de Vagne, or The Tendrils of the Vine, in 1908. This was part of a collection of stories by the same name. She wrote it before her separation from Willy in the early years of her career as a writer. It's framed as a legend that the nightingale didn't used to sing at night until he woke to find that he had become entangled in a fast-growing vine. The nightingale feared that he would die, and so he swore to stay awake and sing for as long as the vine grew. While singing, he discovered his own voice and fell in love with it, singing, quote, I want to say, say, say everything I know, everything I think, everything I guess, everything which delights and hurts and astonishes me. That is Colette, who, as I said at the beginning of part one, parts of her life I love. And other parts I'm like, no, that was that was bad. Girl, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you have listener mail for us? I do. This is from Cindy. Cindy wrote to us after we uh, talked in our most recent Unearthed episodes about watermelon seeds and eating roasted watermelon seeds. Cindy oh, yes. wrote, hi. Yes. Hi, Holly and Tracy. Longtime fan of the show. I've never really been compelled to write, but when you mentioned trying roasted watermelon seeds, I just felt the need to act. Roasted and seasoned watermelon seeds are a popular snack in China and a staple at gatherings. I would say they taste like a slightly sweeter sunflower seed. As much as I like eating them, though, I dreaded them being brought out at a party because it almost always meant that no matter when we said we were going to leave and how late it got, the adults would chatter away for another hour or two, a pile of seed husks slowly growing between them on the table. As the oldest child in the family and among my parents' friends, it just meant I had to sit among the toddlers a little longer. Still, though, it's one of my favorite snacks, and I think that if you like sunflower or pumpkin seeds, you should definitely give them a try. You can find the seeds at most local Chinese supermarkets, but I've included a link to a brand my family likes, as well as pictures of my cat and pup. My girlfriend and I adopted the kitty about five months ago, and his name is Eggs Benedict. I love it. Me too. He's the most active cat I've ever seen and loves to join us on hikes. The pup is Cedric, and I started listening to your show around the time when I adopted him about six years ago. I'm sure he would recognize your voices in a crowd at this point. You've kept us company on many a long drive. Thanks for all you do, and please keep up the great work, Cindy. Cindy sent a picture of, um, they they are soy sauce watermelon seeds, Other folks had also let us know that they're a thing that you can pick up at a Chinese or other Asian supermarket. And then, of course, animal pictures, which we always super, super love. 
So thank you so much for letting me know that about watermelon seeds. I uh, don't know that they have ever caught my eye when I have been in one of the very <laughs> one of our various local uh, Asian groceries. So thank you. If you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're also on social media at Missed in History. Let's you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.